Welcome to episode 6 of Staying Local, a Rice Spear podcast. I'm sorry it's taken me a, a couple of weeks to get this episode recorded and edited. I had hoped to do it sooner, but uh, coming out of lockdown has meant things have been pretty busy on the work front, which is always good to see that things are happening out there. And on top of that, my wife and I are expecting twins any moment now. So we're going to have four under four for a short period of time, so um, I've certainly got my hands full. But enough about me. Uh, this week on the show, I spoke with Barbara Mead, who's an in-house lawyer at Marlborough District Council, and we spoke about the RMA and modular building, and and actually a lot about viticulture, which was fascinating stuff. Um, Barbara has one of the most diverse. Um, backstories out there and um, she's had a varied career that's for sure uh, and now is in local government and we're lucky for that um, so I hope you enjoy the interview with Barbara and don't forget to subscribe and um, we're actually going to try something a little bit new this week I, I get emails all the time with these little technical questions about uh, RMA matters or, or building matters and I thought this is a great opportunity to, to share some of those tricky questions and answers with our followers and, and uh, the local government community. So if anyone has a burning legal question that you want our team to answer, all you need to do is grab your phone, whether it be an iPhone or an Android, there's a voice memo app on, on your phone, record the question and try and keep it short and sharp and email it through to me at nathan at ricespear.co.nz and then I thought we'll get one of our team to answer that and uh, and we'll share it at the next episode. So trying something new here at Rice Spear. Until then, I hope you enjoy this episode and also your level one freedom. Thanks a lot. Barbara Mead, welcome to the Rice Spear podcast. Thank you. Really appreciate you doing this on a Tuesday evening with dogs and husbands and Children and everything else in the background? Well, they're all off in their own space now and husbands sent away with Netflix too, so we should be golden. <laughs> Excellent. Now, you're an in-house lawyer at Marlborough District Council and you've got quite an interesting title there, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Advocacy and Practice Manager. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a team that's been developed since uh, the middle of 2019. It, it was created after I'd been working there for about a year and the role that I'd had slowly evolved from helping create the uh, digital resource consenting platform that they had through to uh, providing legal advice and um, overseeing the proceedings that they have and all the other normal things you'd expect in-house counsel to do. But we decided to come up with a name for the team that reflected not only the role of what it did, but also, more importantly, um, the wider role that it had. So advocacy, for instance, wasn't just about doing the normal lawyer things in-house, but it was also about 
um, facilitating and advocating for the teams within council themselves so that they could work together but also work with the councillors and also advocating on behalf of our community members as such so that they understood council's role in the community and that relationship was improved as well. The practice integration side was part of that. Okay, and is this something that is unique to Marlborough or is it a role that uh, exists elsewhere? Well, um, it's, it is unique to Marlborough because the, the other half of that advocacy aspect is the practice integration aspect and I think that's where perhaps other councils would be more interested in looking. I've looked around and spoken to other councils and checked out with a couple of the bigger law firms and it doesn't seem that there's anyone doing quite what we do. Uh, there's a couple of councils that have the training side to it, but not the practice integration side. So the practice integration side is the idea of doing training and identifying best um, practice and putting in those improvements, things like templates and um, procedural changes, etc. But the integrated part of that is trying to get the teams to work together across regulatory services and more widely. So often someone in the community wants to do something or has a problem or a concern. And it's not just one team that would actually be impacted by that. It's multiple teams or multiple teams that can assist. So building compliance and consents may all form a role. So it's about making sure that not only for that particular issue, all those teams are able to work together and have a, a good outcome but also where we notice an issue in one area that we look for the ripple effect of, in the workload for the other teams and we make those changes. We either leap ahead of them and, and try and get them on the right path straight away. We look at practice changes to improve things in the long term so that those issues don't come up again. So the bonus for council is uh, in theory at least um, reducing the risk of litigation and improving relationships but it's also for the staff themselves it's about improving the enjoyment of their job because it's um, more productive more efficient and generally they have better relationships with those they work with it also prevents siloing absolutely quite a few of the cases that we're involved with at the moment where there's an rma and a building act uh, component does involve a slipping between the cracks uh, where two teams are involved in the in the same piece of work and perhaps aren't communicating. Absolutely. And no matter how good the record keeping and record sharing systems are within a council, they're never perfect. And there's this, I always call it the hive mind, you know, there's this belief of, uh, and it is a legal idea as well, of course, that within council, we all share this one big bucket of knowledge and we should know everything that every other team is doing. And, and that becomes very difficult. It's difficult as it is across regulatory services. And then in a, in a one like ours, where we're a unitary authority, it becomes even more complicated. And as a member of the community, you ring up, you expect them, the person you speak to, to be able to tell you everything from development contributions to rates, um, all the way through to building issues and um, resource management issues. And it's, it's not realistic, but it is what we have to deal with and what we're trying to meet as the sort of high end goal of what we'd like to be able to provide. Yes, but how does that work in practice? You've got a lot of oversight um, being across several teams. So what is actually the structure that you've got in place to, to ensure that you can do the job that you really need to do? So it's not so much that I have um, oversight and a management capacity over these teams so much as I'd be a conduit or a facilitator of those communications between those teams. So I tend to have quite strong relationships with the managers of those teams. 
Um, I also um, have good relationships with the officers themselves. So it depends on how the situation comes up. But often um, an officer will come to me for assistance or to run something past me. And I just kind of keep a, an eye, a, a, a sort of mental tally in my mind of how often this comes up. Or, you know, you can often, you have an instinct after a while, don't you, where something's slightly problematic. And I'll have a chat with the managers or it may be the managers who come to me and say, look, I've noticed there's an issue out there. I'm worried about something come up, coming up or there's a change in, in um, the legislation that may be coming up. So that's how we build it. We're always just basically like meerkats, our team, <laughs> standing on the horizon and looking for the problems as, as best we can and then going to the different managers and hoping to, uh, to work towards avoiding those um, problems coming into fruition. Look, we'll get into your role in a, a bit more detail shortly, but um, I have to say you have to take the award as being one of the most qualified people uh, to have come on the show. <laughs> I don't know if that says much. <laughs> Not only have you done a law degree, you've done a master's in law, plus on the side, you've done a degree in, in viticulture. Are you sure you haven't picked the wrong job being in the law? Well, I was going to say, all lawyers I know drink a lot of wine, so <laughs> it's kind of just another name for the same degree. <laughs> Yes, well, you've, your video's gone down, so I, I suspect you might have a glass in hand right now. But in all um, seriousness, tell us about it. Uh, well, I have always liked wine, um, but not just the little drinking of, the, of the, the glass, but the entire idea around the production of it, but also the culture and the history and the sort of social relationship we have with um, drinking and eating and, and being together. And so it's been something that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, in fact, our honeymoon was three weeks tripping around <laughs> the vineyards. So when we moved down to Marlborough in oh, 2014, I think it was, or something like that, um, I was at home with my little ones at the time. So I actually originally took it up for two reasons. One is partly something to keep my brain ticking over so I didn't go completely <laughs> um, mad with three small people um but also because i thought well when i get back into work i would like to know more about one of the main industries and that is you know aquaculture down here viticulture down here tourism those are some of our big industries forestry obviously as well um but viticulture seems like um the one to have a look at for me in terms of doing some additional study and i have to say um it's actually helped quite a lot in the work I do at council, simply to understand the activities and some of the complex um, arrangements that some of the wineries and vineyards, et cetera, are wanting to put in place, you can you understand them more quickly. It's a shame we can't do a degree in a whole bunch of other areas as well. <laughs> yes, and I, I'd assume that most of the cases or the issues that come across your desk um, quite often would involve a vineyard. You, you sort of can't get away from it in the Marlborough region. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and I mean, the degree that I did, uh, it was based in the local um, Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology. So it's more of a practical degree um, aimed at middle, middle, sorry, middle management as opposed to a more of a theoretical academic um, degree. It had certainly a lot of academic qualities to it. But the bonus for me, again, was that that meant I actually had some um, hands-on experience as well. I went and did a vintage and these sorts of things. So I... 
can empathise and understand some of the concerns that those members of the community have when they're dealing with council and the pressures they're under, particularly during the time of vintage. And down here, Marlborough is a funny wee place because when you do have vintage on, it becomes incredibly quiet anyway because everybody's just busy. There's this flurry of social activity in the four weeks preceding and then all the families and everyone goes quiet because there's so many people who are committed to that industry and it eats up that huge period of time. Fascinating. Um, do you see a, a life post-council in the, in the viticulture industry? Is that something that you'd be interested in doing? Potentially. I don't think I'd ever go and work, um, you know, own a vineyard or go and do wine, um, wine making myself. I think it takes a lot of time and dedication and skill. And by the time I get to that, I probably won't be doing that. But I would be probably interested in looking more, I think, into the, oh, how would you put it, like the, the in, I guess it's still the environmental law side of things and how they're managing stuff, particularly overseas and how they manage um, their environmental footprint whilst trying to maintain the traditional winemaking styles that they've been doing, which require a certain way of having things being done. Uh, for instance, the uh, reduction in the use of copper as a spray over in France is really impacting their sparkling wine, their champagne. And so that's an interesting thing to me. And how would you deal with that when you start pulling that into, uh, you know, just in the good old RMA context of how we look at things? It's an interesting idea. So I don't know exactly what that would be money-wise, but we're pretending I get really rich and I just do what I want, right? <laughs> of course we can. It's, uh, you know, th this is the time to dream. <laughs> um now, you mentioned Auckland. Uh, am I right that you're an Aucklander through and through, bleed blue and all that sort of stuff? Aucklander born and bred, I think, is the, the phrase one uses. So do we own that very well? Do we, do we hide that away? No, so... Hey, 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 nothing to be ashamed of being an Aucklander. What, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, that's okay then. Yeah, that's okay. No, so Auckland born and bred, um, and it's been all my life living there, but for when we lived in England for a period of time. But when we came back from England um, and I had the, the children, that's when we thought, well, um, we'd enjoyed living in a smaller village over in England and we wanted to go somewhere smaller, not as small as a village as such, um, but also wanted to be somewhere that um, had, you know, a good, a good feel to it, good food, good wine, um, a mix of people within it so it would be easy enough to slip in and make friends. And we're not out there doing lots of hardcore mountain biking and hunting, so, so we have to have a few people who like just doing more simple, retire, you know, quiet things. And Marlborough seemed to be a good fit for us. So when uh, my husband was offered a position down here, that's why we moved down here. Right. And when you arrived in Marlborough, did you go straight to council or did you have a, a little period at a, at a private law firm? Um, I was with the children at first and then doing the viticulture degree for a bit. And then I did some opinion writing and some uh, policy work, et cetera, for a private practice. And then I actually got, um, what would be the word, <laughs> a friend of a friend said, hello, hello. There's a, a need for someone like you in council in this particular role. Why don't you come along and have a chat? And so I did, and it looked really interesting. I liked the people that were there. I liked uh, the intellectual discussions that they were having. And so I jumped on in. 
Okay. Well, just before you mentioned uh, that you were working in the UK, is that where your local government career started? Yeah, I'd worked in um, with the Ministry of Social Development before that, so a government like you know, but not not local in that sense. No. So over in the UK, I worked with three different um, councils there, but it was still within um, a social work or children's work context, because over there they didn't they don't have um, they don't put everything off to a CYFS system, or now it's obviously they've got a different name. Uh, they just retain all of that with their local councils, which is a different structure. Can I just say? Stop you there and just say I, I don't think I've come across someone who has such a varied legal <laughs> legal career. You've you've worked with children, you've worked in viticulture, and and now local government. Is there anything that you can't do, Barbara? Well, yeah, I get asked that too. Actually, I get asked two things when people find out. You know, particularly the whole children tend to um, family stuff. You know, one, did you move out of children's law because you had children and therefore didn't want to do it anymore? Um, no, that wasn't the reason at all. I didn't actually find that an issue for me. Um, and two, are they completely different? They seem so different. And I actually don't think they are. The way I explain it to my children is, uh, and you all know this maybe, you know, The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. I do know The Lorax by Dr. Seuss very well and actually am right in the thick of those books with my three-year-old at the moment. Oh, you you need the movies. You'll be doing the dances around the lounge in no time. It's fantastic. But um, so my children have been seeing that ever since they were teeny tiny. And that's how I explained it to them. The Lorax, of course, is the furry little orange fellow, and he speaks for the trees um, when they want to bulldoze everything down and, and uh, put in a whole lot of commercial structures there. And and the people in the end obviously suffer because they go too far. They, they miss the balance. And that's really what the Lorax is about. And I say to them, well, it's the same thing. So the Lorax speaks for the trees. When I was doing children's work, I spoke for the parents um, and the families that didn't have a voice, weren't capable of having a voice within um, the legal system. And in this case, I see it the same role, not only speaking for the environment, but speaking for council officers and also trying to find the right balance so that the community have a voice. Because to me, that's what law is about. It's about empowering people who are working or, or dealing with legal um, systems to actually advocate for themselves. The old um, teach them to fish, don't give them a fish. That's what I think lawyer roles should be. So the children and environment stuff, in my mind, is very, very similar. I just speak for more trees now than I do babies. <laughs> Speaking for the trees, I like that. Um, and on that note, your role now mainly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is in that environmental space and um, dealing with the RMA? Yeah. Dabble with a, a bit of building, as you know. <laughs> I do know, Barbara. And um, interesting, do you find working with the Building Act and the RMA similar or different? I find them very, very different acts to work under. Um, I find the Building Act can be more frustrating, and I don't know entirely why that is, but I, it times it feels to me that it doesn't have a logical uh, thread that runs through it. There seems to be potholes um, throughout it where you wish that they had included something different in the sections or just included something at all. And you could say the same about the RMA. And the RMA, of course, has been heavily amended and trolled, uh, trolled through on numerous occasions. But there's that that thread running through it all the time, isn't there? There's that part two thread. And no matter where we sit on that pendulum swinging back and forth to how we're applying part two, um, 
it's still there, we still go back to that and say, okay, we're interpreting the rest of the RMA sections now. How are we going? I feel like the building legislation doesn't necessarily have that, and that's a shame because it would assist a lot more. And saying that, Nathan, that's your bread and butter, so maybe you're going to smack me and say no. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right, Barbara, and I 100% agree that there are potholes in the Building Act. Um, it, it, it's a clunky piece of legislation, and unlike the RMA, it hasn't been amended uh, a whole lot. And I think the other um, part of it from my perspective is that the Building Act hasn't been litigated a lot. And um, I, I've got the benefit, like you, of, of working with the pieces, the two pieces of legislation side by side. And to me, it is really apparent, the differences. And I'm, I'm pleased to, to hear that, uh, that you agree and um, you observe those too. And it makes you wonder why that is the case. I mean, I mean only guessing off the, off the top of my head, I wonder, is it because the RMA involves so many large commercial activities where there's the money and the backing to do it, but also because we're talking about people's lives in a very real way and their environment and fluffy animals and things, um, that there's the passion and the drive in um, other charity organisations or spokespeople to get involved and drive the law forward in that way. Whereas building, as nice as it is, doesn't have that kind of sexy element to, to warrant as much excitement and parties wanting to develop the case all the same way. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and it's also on a practical level, um, I've observed a, a real reluctance in, in the past to push cases through the court system from, from building teams. And uh, I think that is changing now. I, I've definitely noticed a, a bit of a change in that space. Well, funnily enough, the role when it started was principally serving the resource consent team and then expanding to doing the compliance team and obviously with this idea of, of the integration across all the teams. But building now, building takes up an enormous amount of my time. I mean, I was recording some of the stats very loosely um, and we were talking probably a good, easily 40% of the time, I would say. And it's becoming more and more complex, partly because of the triggers from the resource management side as well. Uh, you know, we've got hail van, we've got hazard overlays, all these sorts of things, and they impact on the nature of the building that you're going to do. And then in Marlborough, we have other complications. You know, we have RSE uh, worker accommodation, we have holiday accommodation that we're trying to do, we have a diverse population with different spending um, capacity and also different desires of how they wish to live. So there's a lot of, it's not a standard, let's just build this house in this location in a very normal way. There's a uniqueness to the way we operate, which raises all those uh, questions under the Building Act and sometimes pushes you into a few potholes. It will. I'm interested in your views on, on modern methods of construction at the moment. Is something that you've encountered? Well, this is, this is where I put that, um, that I, I represent nobody but myself in the next comments. Um, <laughs> I think that that kind of uh, innovative construction is, we're going to see more of it. I think it has a place and it's probably really valuable, um, especially where it it takes into account um, environmentally appropriate um, methods and resources. If we then have to balance that, though, with the jobs that go by the wayside when you, you cut out that part of the building industry. 
the um, aesthetics of everybody starts building the similar types, never mind getting into, well, the practicalities of how do we ensure that that housing is appropriate, safe and fit for purpose, not only for the end user, but also in the location that it's in. So I, I would definitely not say no, but I think it's like everything else in life. If you're going to do it, let's look at what the problems are and set it up so that when we do it, it's successful. Definitely. We've talked a bit about building and, and that part of your role, but I'm really interested to, to hear about the environmental law side of your practice um, and particularly what issues you're encountering at the moment, um, but more importantly, really, what, what's on the horizon for, for councils in the RMA space? Oh, uh, I've got a few pet, pet faves, but I don't think they're necessarily massive um, national uh, issues of national interest so much as those that you could have perhaps a little sympathy for. Uh, for instance, water. Water is always a huge thing. And I say that as I see you down taking a mouthful of water from your cup, or at least we think it's water. Hmm, I knows? promise <laughs> I have not got a gin in hand right now. You know, uh, but I, even just water in a really simple way um, of trying to make sure that we have this system in place where we require people to have their resource consents for water take and use and in our region we separate it you have to have a consent for take and a consent for use we don't push the two together um, and we have a, an arrangement where there's different classes of water so that during shutdown periods um, you you have to shut down more frequently if you're on a lower class of water uh, as such the difficulty is, of course, that people are then investing. Either they're, they've got a personal home, and that's slightly different because there's a degree of right to take water under our plans um, for domestic use. But they're investing in their properties, they're investing in their businesses, and then we've got this water um, consent process that we have to manage and support people to making sure that they are doing what they're supposed to do and complying with their consents, and that they're keeping them up to date and looking to renew those when they need to and don't fall into into a gap in between where they end up with an investment and no no water to keep that investment going. And that's really difficult because that actually steps beyond what council's role is, but the community expects that to be council's role. And we feel a lot of pressure in, in that area, I think. Um, forestry is another area that we have a lot of pressure in but it's partly because we have a whole um we have the sounds which of course are, are very vulnerable both in terms of the soil but in their close relationship that it has with the coastal marine area and then of course good old aquaculture you've got it all <laughs> aquaculture everywhere <laughs> oh yeah and aquaculture in in two ways really i mean we've got it's like everything else there's a limited amount of space most of the spaces are taken up there is some wriggle room there, but it's pretty well occupied at this stage. And trying to manage that so that that part of the um, economy carries on ticking away happily, that the small um, farm holders, as well as the large farm conglomerate holders, are both successful, but also complying with their consents. And finding out where do we, where and how do we look to develop that industry further? Because there's certainly a feeling from um, both politically but also business-wise that that's a, a, an industry that New Zealand should be looking at exploring, expanding. But how do we expand that appropriately? And what role does council have in, in facilitating that? Well, 
again, it's more about expectations. There's a lot of expectations on council on doing that. And of course, that's not council's role really at all, is it? I mean, council has a number of hats that it wears, but looking at it from a regulatory side, we look at it from the RMA. So we're straight, straight back into part two and finding the appropriate balance there. And I couldn't even hint to you really as to where we're going in that because that falls under our policy team and our whole aquaculture chapter of our new plan is yet to be um, put through its process, its schedule process yet. So I don't know where that's going to go. But obviously that doesn't stop in the meantime, all of the consents looking at rolling in and being renewed and the, the ongoing work in that area. So it'll be an interesting space to see where it goes. And I know that uh, that's a topic um, that is a that also has a lot of aquaculture issues starting to bubble up. We're looking at that too now. So it's, it'll be an area that I think will be of particular interest as we see it develop. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> Hi everyone, Nathan here. Now at this point in the Zoom call, we struck some technical difficulties in the... Uh, the recording isn't fantastic, so we'll leave the interview there. But can I just say uh, a big thanks to Barbara Mead for joining me uh, on, on an interview during our COVID lockdown sessions. Uh, it was fantastic to talk to Barbara. She's a fascinating person who manages to fit a lot into her everyday life, from family to council work to viticulture uh, and even teaching at the Faculty of Law at Waikato University. So thank you very much to Barbara and until next time, uh, thank you for joining Rice Bears Podcast. Mm -hmm.